If you had to pick one word to sum up how COVID-19 has changed healthcare in the U.S., telehealth would be a pretty safe pick. Well, let's start with telehealth. Telehealth. Virtual visits by video or phone. Telehealth. Telehealth. Private and public insurers relaxed long-standing rules to make virtual care cheaper and easier to access. But now, that could be starting to change. Today, from the Annenberg Studio at the University of Pennsylvania, what we've learned about telehealth and how many of these pandemic policies are here to stay. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. To be clear, when we think about what telehealth is, it includes video visits, using the telephone, using email, and all of these were used before, but the paradigm shift is actually putting a reimbursement model around it and recognizing it as formal healthcare. Chad Ilimuto is a urologist and the director of the Telehealth Research Incubator at the University of Michigan. He says when people stopped going to doctor's offices at the beginning of the pandemic, commercial insurers, states, and the federal government loosened a lot of regulations that had historically limited the use of telehealth. Probably the biggest change was that patients were allowed to do these telehealth visits from home, which they weren't allowed to do before. Um, and they were able to use common technologies like FaceTime. So copays too were also waived for uh, for patients. And then from the doctor's side, they were getting paid the same amount as if the patient had come into clinic. So, I mean, this was huge, right? Because all of a sudden, people who had to previously, if they were going to use telehealth, jump through all sorts of hoops, were able to meet with their doctors and nurses from the comfort of their home, not face copays, and you guys, the doctors, were getting paid the same rate. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, telehealth has existed for a long time. There were a lot of regulatory burdens that made it very hard for patients and also hard for um, healthcare providers. Effectively, all of those burdens were removed in the month of March. Without those regulations blocking the way, telehealth exploded. According to the firm Epic Health Research, virtual care accounted for 70% of all patient visits at its peak in mid-April. Now, as people have become more comfortable getting their care in person again, Epic finds that number has settled closer to 20%. Still a huge increase compared to the less than 1% of people who had gotten their care virtually before the pandemic. Chad, as a doctor who's been doing telehealth visits as long as you have for several years, what kind of patient case is a poster child that shows telehealth at its most valuable? When I first became interested in virtual care, one of the earliest patients that inspired me was an elementary school teacher that comes to see me from about two hours away. So she'll take half a day off of work to come visit me. And usually those visits are 15-minute consultations where I look at a CT scan or I look at an X-ray and I give her a plan of care for her kidney stone. And that interaction is very quick for me. It takes half a day for her and it requires no physical exam. So that's a great example of how virtual care can improve people's lives by uh, making it easy to integrate healthcare into their daily life. And how about the flip side? Is there a patient that has helped you understand the limitations of telehealth or when it's just not a really good fit? 
One story I remember is a patient who travels over eight hours to come for a visit. And so they seem like they would be a great fit for telehealth. But actually, if you talk to the patient and understand what goes on during that day, um, they're older, their kids pick them up, they drive them down to Ann Arbor hey, for Mom, the visit. After the visit's over, they get lunch at you know one of the restaurants in Ann Arbor. And so um, for them, that's a that whole day is the experience. It's not the 15-minute consultation that they have with their doctor. So being able to give them telehealth doesn't necessarily improve their quality of life because what they wanted to do was actually spend the day with their kids. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The question of access is obviously at the core of the conversation around telehealth. The goal is that this could make healthcare more convenient and accessible. That's clear. But my health economist friends would be quick to warn me that making care easier can also lead to waste. Have we seen telehealth leading to unnecessary or wasteful or even harmful care during the pandemic? The time period during the pandemic is a little chaotic, so it's really hard to really understand whether or not unnecessary care is going on. At the same time, there's also this possibility that it could actually reduce unnecessary care. There's diagnostic tests that are sometimes done in the office that may not necessarily be very high yield, but they're done out of convenience. And so if you skip those because you're doing a video visit, you may actually reduce healthcare spending. What we'll have to do is wait six to 12 months or so to really understand the impact on healthcare spending. Your, your point is the pandemic isn't the best time to really understand this question. How much research do we have from before the pandemic to understand the wasteful care? Actually, our research group has been looking at this question about unnecessary care uh, for a while. We recently published a study where we compared 600 visits in urology that were conducted through video and compared them to 600 visits that were conducted in person. What we wanted to understand was whether or not patients that were getting the video visits were actually getting inadequate care and they still have to come in for in-person care. And when we did that study, we found no difference in the number of times people were coming back within 30 days for related care. What that's essentially telling you is that these visits are being used as a substitute as opposed to an expansion of healthcare services. And is that good? Absolutely. We do have studies in other specialties where we found that there was a higher rate of in-person care after a telehealth visit. And so um, you should be selecting patients for telehealth in a way that they won't need additional in-person care and it shouldn't necessarily lead to additional healthcare spending. It's interesting that we've begun to see some private insurers start to pull back and they're no longer waiving the cost sharing for telehealth, right? Consumers now, again, are responsible for their copays. 
Does this worry you that momentum could be lost? I actually have mixed thoughts about this. And so on on one hand, I've always viewed telehealth as a substitute for in-person care. So if you're paying a copay for in-person care, then you should pay a copay for a video visit. Uh, But on the other hand, um, I think what matters is the patient's perception of the visit. So are the patient's perceiving the visit as equal to an in-person care. Some of our colleagues at University of Michigan did a poll of patients aged 50 to 80, and they found that two out of three actually didn't feel the quality of care delivered through telehealth was the same as in-person care. So if they don't feel the quality is the same, then they may be more hesitant to pay a copay, and then there may be a decrease in the momentum to use telehealth. These are questions public programs like Medicare are looking at. There's bipartisan support, including from the president, to make a lot of these telehealth changes permanent. But some of the biggest moves, like expanding telehealth beyond rural America and letting patients connect from home, will require congressional approval. And there's some tricky policy questions to consider, like should nurses and doctors get paid for plain phone calls with no video at the same rate as in-person visits. I have patients that are in rural parts of Michigan that it's not easy to do a video consultation with them because of the lack of broadband in those areas. And even if they have access to internet, a lot of times it can be slow. And so um, doing a telephone call with them is a good substitute. And so if that's taken away, then the ability to do telehealth will be taken away for a lot of populations. But going back to the idea of wasteful care for a second, I could see phone calls being a driver of that easy but ultimately unnecessary care. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's also a disadvantage to covering telephone calls. I make about 10 phone calls a day when I'm in my clinical practice, and some of these are just calling patients back and telling them you know, they have normal results. They're quick phone calls. And so I would never think about billing for those phone calls, but if the Medicare program does cover all of these phone calls, there are certainly some practices that may start charging patients for quick five-minute phone calls, and then that would lead to a lot of additional healthcare spending. You mentioned that these phone calls could be especially good for people without a reliable internet connection. And I know that's one of the concerns about telehealth, right? That it could make it even harder for people in rural parts of the country and low-income people to actually access care. Do we have any evidence, Chad, on how telehealth has impacted health disparities during the pandemic? So it may be a little too early to tell whether or not telehealth is going to impact disparities, but we do know that there was a digital divide among telehealth users. For example, higher rates of use among patients that were non-rural compared to rural patients. And we also saw higher rates of use among patients that were higher income compared to low income. But overall, for all populations that we've studied, we saw a dramatic increase in the use of telehealth. Chad, knowing all that you know, the expert that you are, if someone at CMS or Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan called you up and said, hey, what's your recommendation? What should telehealth policies look like post-pandemic? What do you say? So I think that telehealth policies post-pandemic should actually look very similar to telehealth policies during the pandemic. Let's collect data. 
Let's see the impact on healthcare spending. Let's see the impact on healthcare access. Let's see the impact on healthcare quality. And then we can make decisions down the line. I'm more concerned about having patients losing access to telehealth than I am about increases in healthcare spending in the short term. In the long term, absolutely, we, we need to have policy changes, tweaks to the policy so that we can account for these changes to avoid fraud and abuse, to avoid excess healthcare spending. But in the short term, I think what we have to do is see how telehealth plays out. Chad, thanks for taking the time to talk to us on trade-offs. Absolutely, Dan. I appreciate it. It's hard to imagine telehealth going back to the way it was before the pandemic, but fears over increased health spending are real, and Congress would have to act to make some of the biggest changes permanent, meaning Chad's post-pandemic telehealth dream is far from guaranteed. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. As drug makers race to come up with a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19, they're placing an unprecedented focus on diverse representation in clinical trials. They're saying, okay, you have to stop enrolling Caucasian people right now. We have plenty because they are really looking to get racial diversity that somewhat mimics the United States. But that's easier said than done. Next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. You can keep in touch with us between episodes by signing up for our newsletter. Just click on the link in the show notes or on the big orange button at the top of our website, tradeoffs.org. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at TradeoffsPod, and we'd be eternally grateful if you gave us a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use, because it really does help people find us. The Tradeoffs team is producers Vicki Stern and Ryan Levy, intern Sabrina Ems, communication and marketing manager Emily Patterson, researcher Jamie Song, partnerships lead Jessica Silverman, sound designer Andrew Perella, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Additional thanks to Ateev Marotra, Lindsey Browning, Matt Salo, and Sean Cavanaugh. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the California Healthcare Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Additional support from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.